Well, greetings to you again. Glad you're here at Covenant. Uh, greetings uh, as well to our live stream audience. We're going to finish Mark chapter 1 uh, this morning. And so we'll begin at verse 29 all the way to the end of that chapter. And what we're going to see in Mark chapter 2 is we're going to see that Jesus begins to come under real conflict. In fact, that's really all of chapter 2. Jesus uh, preaching, but coming under great conflict. But this morning, we're looking at the expansion of the fame of Jesus and his attempt to control that expansion, which is an interesting topic we want to investigate. Mark wants us to pay attention to the expansion of the gospel, but Jesus' control of that gospel message. And little theologians, I'm glad that you're here as well. I'd like for you to draw a picture for me, not about your childhood, but about my own childhood. Maybe I'm selfish in that way. Uh, I used to uh, play with uh, marbles, but I didn't uh, play the circle game where you flick them into the circle and knock marbles out. I just thought they were interesting, and marbles were usually a cheap toy that I could talk my mom into purchasing on a whim. And I just liked having uh, marbles and trading with my friends. But one thing that I would do with marbles is we had a hill next to our house. And my brother and I would uh, dig little grooves in the hill so that the marbles could go uh, all the way uh, down the hill. And just explaining it like that, it sounds even to me tremendously boring, but uh, hours and hours of time were spent doing that. And so uh, draw a picture of marbles being uh, guided down various uh, grooves and channels, uh, marbles being controlled. And then listen to the sermon how Jesus, he preaches the gospel, but he's still controlling how that gospel is heard and understood and goes forth. Well, if you can uh, do that, I'll be very, very pleased indeed. Again, welcome to Covenant. Before uh, we read this passage from Mark 1, join me in prayer. Father, we are uh, delighted that you make yourself known, but we're not delighted that we have Uh, ears that are hard to hear and hearts that are hard to bend to what uh, you teach us. But Father, we trust that your Holy Spirit will give us understanding. And so we are delighted that you would speak to us and we are delighted for the ministry of the Holy Spirit to us and for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So Mark uh, chapter 1. Uh, beginning at verse 29. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. 
and he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could, not, could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. This is the word of our Lord. Well, so several times Jesus attempts to control what it is that others know about him and what it is that others say about him. He's proclaiming the gospel, he's teaching in the synagogues, and he's even delivered a man of an evil spirit as we saw last week. But he's also controlling how people think about him and what they say about him. And the scene is just before our scene this morning that is actually very telling. We looked at this last week. At the synagogue, an evil spirit speaks up. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus, he he won't allow him to continue. And he says in verse 25, be silent. There might be some good doctrine here that this demon might offer. Uh, Certainly Jesus is the Holy One of God. But Jesus will control the flow of the message of the gospel how that message is revealed, and he says, be silent. Well, we see that again and again in the passage this morning. Look at verse 34. Jesus would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And then in verse 35, I think it might be harder to see here, but still there, rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus departed and he went out to a desolate place. And then when the disciples uh, say to him in verse 37, everyone's looking for you, he replies, let us go on. Let us go on. It's time to leave. And then in verse 44, after healing a leper, Jesus says to this man, see that you say nothing to anyone. And he says this sternly. And we want to ask, why? Why is it that Jesus is controlling the flow of information about himself? In the early 20th century, a biblical scholar uh, called this the messianic secret of Mark's gospel. And that scholar, with whom I agree very, very little, that scholar says that uh, Jesus uh, preaches in a secretive way. And he says, uh, the scholar does, uh, theorizing that it may be that Jesus wasn't the true true Messiah after all. He was uh, rather testing that message. But we shouldn't, we shouldn't, Think that as we look at this passage. And in fact, we've seen God do exactly what Jesus is doing here in this passage before. In redemptive history, God reveals himself. God reveals his will. But God never allows humanity to define him or to second-guess him or to manipulate him. He reveals himself, but he controls that revelation. God makes promises to Abraham, but Abraham doesn't get to share these promises or bring about these promises as he sees fit. He has to follow God's will. God shows Moses his own glory, but Moses is taught explicitly what to say and what to do, and what not to say and what not to do. God, he, of course, makes David king, but David doesn't get to decide how he'll rule. He's to follow God, 
to rule according to his will. And God adopts us as his own ambassadors of the, of the gospel, employing us to proclaim that gospel. But we don't have the freedom to disseminate this gospel as we see fit, changing the message for our crowd. You see all of this, don't you? And so here Jesus brings people into the kingdom of God, but he's going to control exactly how that's done. The time is fulfilled to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God, but he will control how that message is preached. And we're going to see that control three times. And each time we see that control, we're going to see it paired with another character of who Jesus is. And so, for instance, Jesus will control the message of the gospel even as he serves his disciples. He'll control the message of the gospel even as he submits to the Heavenly Father. And he'll control the message of the gospel even as he pities the world. First, in verses 29 through 34, he will control, but he'll also, he'll also serve. And 29 opens, and immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. These, these four men are still the only disciples named in Mark's gospel. Simon, who's likely the one relaying this information to Mark, well, he's married, and his wife's mother is laying ill with a fever, in verse 30. She doesn't seem to be in plain view such that as soon as you enter the house, you can see her. It may be that it's a rather large house. And we're not told that the disciples are asking Jesus for a healing miracle in particular. Keep in mind that in Mark's gospel, Mark hasn't told us anything about the healing ministry of Jesus thus far. It could be that the disciples are simply informing Jesus because uh, this woman, Peter's mother-in-law, is the host in charge, and as guests enter, well, they need a host. We're, not, we're told nothing as well that's really specific about her illness. She simply has a fever, and it would seem as though there's no ordinary remedy for this fever, and so she's isolated. And what Jesus does is fascinating. Jesus deliberately goes to her. Verse 31 says, and he came... Nobody asks him to do so. Jesus, he does what he's done uh, already over and over again in Mark chapter 1. Jesus takes charge. And then he, by his own initiative, he goes to her, but he does something that we have uh, also not seen in Mark's gospel. He takes her by the hand, and he lifts her up. You remember what it's like when you shake hands with someone, right? We all once did that a long, long time ago. And uh, oftentimes the cue for shaking a hand is a cue that you don't always expect. Someone simply reaches out their hand, and instinctively you reach out your hand. Why do we do that? But we do it, don't we? Oh, it's handshaking time, and we just reach out our hand. Why does that happen? Well, Jesus is the first one, isn't he? He's the one who uh, takes his hand and extends it to her. And it may be, Mark doesn't tell us, it may be that she just instinctively reaches out her hand. Jesus hasn't touched anyone in Mark's gospel thus far. This is the first time we see this. You know, we're not even told that Jesus and John the Baptist uh, touch each other. I think it would be hard to imagine that they wouldn't touch each other, John the Baptist uh, baptizing Jesus. I suppose it's possible. But Mark hasn't told us that Jesus touches anybody. 
but he goes into this woman's room, and he takes her by the hand, and he raises her up. Astounding details, I think. In fact, the presence of these details, to me, shine great beauty on the work of Jesus, as I'll describe. There's more here than meets the eye. But these details also shine great beauty on the work of the Holy Spirit, just as well. Scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit. These details are here because the Holy Spirit wants them to be here for our instruction. Isn't the Holy Spirit amazing? But these details are here because Jesus actually, well, he actually did them. What is Jesus doing here as he takes her hand? Well, it could be simply taking her hand, lifting her up. But it's interesting that Jeremiah, when he reflects upon God's care for the Hebrew people in Egypt, he describes that care this way. He says that God took the Hebrew people by the hand to bring them out of Egypt. And Isaiah, he does something similar. Uh, in Isaiah chapter 41, Isaiah describes God as a king who tramples every other king under his feet. Yes, isn't God the king mighty? But he also describes God the King in this way, again, Isaiah 41. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. Is not Jesus the one who shows us then what God is like? And is he not doing that right here in this house? God, he's the maker of all things. He's the judge of all things. He's mighty and dangerous, deserving of complete fidelity. Test him and you'll regret it. Refuse to submit to him and you'll regret it. But look, God, he comes to you. And what we remember from a long time ago, someone coming to us and holding out their hand, God does this to us in Jesus. And he holds out his hand. He holds out his hand to you right now. Will you take that hand and be lifted up? Or will you lay there still? Well, let's consider what it is that Jesus is doing. I believe he's actually uh, serving this woman. He is helping her. And, and not only that, he is serving her and helping her, well, help and serve the disciples. I mean, you might say that Jesus is showing compassion, and he certainly is showing compassion. This is compassionate. Uh, Jesus will, however, say that he comes not to be served, or not, yeah, not to be served, but to serve by giving his life as a ransom. Uh, there's Mark 10:45, the thematic verse of the entire gospel. Not to be served does he come, but to serve. And what does Peter's mother-in-law do? Imagine this. She takes the hand of Jesus he raises her up, the fever leaves her, and in, ver in verse 31, Mark is very clear to say she doesn't serve Jesus, she began to serve them, the disciples, and likely anyone else who's in the house at the time. It's almost as if Mark is giving us, through Peter, this little miniaturized picture of the life of the church. Jesus, he touches one person, and then that person immediately touches others. Just as Jesus serves one he enables those who have been served by Jesus to serve others. It's a remarkable thing that's happening here is Jesus, he's serving this woman, but he's also serving his disciples, giving a bit of a foretaste of his own ministry. But before leaving this section, notice what happens at the end of the Sabbath day. Verse 33, many people throughout Capernaum, they begin to arrive 
at the door, the entire city at the door. What an evocative image. And now Mark tells us that after he's already healed a woman in a relatively private setting, Jesus, he begins to heal many who were sick with various diseases. He's not just healing, but he's preaching the gospel. He's telling people how to enter the kingdom of God. This is very clear from verse 38. He's been preaching the gospel. But just as he did earlier that morning at the synagogue worship service, and he told that uh, demon that he would uh, not be permitted to speak, Jesus does that same thing here in this passage. He's preaching the gospel, and yet he's still controlling how that gospel is disseminated. Even though the doorway is full of people in need of Jesus, even as he preaches and he heals, Jesus controls that message of how one enters the kingdom of God. Now let's leave the scene real quickly. We see Jesus serving even as he is controlling the gospel message. And we see that again in the next section, verses 35 through 39. He controls the gospel, but we're not shown how he serves. We're instead shown how he submits to the Heavenly Father. At the next verse, verse 35, it seems to be the very next day. Mark tells us that Jesus rose very early in the morning while it was still dark, and he prays. Now, what do you think of when you think of prayer? We think of bringing our various needs before God. In fact, the Bible commands us to bring our supplications, our desperate needs, and our requests before God. And we thank God in our prayers. We praise him. We confess our sins to him in our prayers. And we don't have the content here of Jesus' actual prayer, but perhaps he hit on many of these things, though he certainly didn't confess his sins. But he does seem to be praying for guidance from the Heavenly Father. He's asking God to tell him what to do next so that he then might submit to the Father's will. And there's actually evidence for this. And first we see in verse 38 that Jesus is directing the next steps. In 38, he says, let's go to the next towns. And he's, he's calling the shots. That seems to have been an answer uh, in prayer from God. We actually see this leadership of Jesus all over Mark's gospel. Uh, right after John is arrested, Jesus, he comes into Galilee proclaiming the good news. He's always in charge, isn't he? He refuses to take a back seat. He always wants to leave this Jesus. What, in fact, does he say to the disciples? Follow me. But his leadership is actually an act of submission. Elsewhere in the Bible, we're told that Jesus keeps the commandments of God. He keeps the word of the Father. He is always obedient to the Father. He performs the will of the Father. Well, Jesus is submitting to his Father not merely because he's praying to him. He is submitting to his Father in that what the Father says, he does. And so, verse 38, let us go on to the next towns. He's following the Father. There's another a bit of evidence that would show us that the prayer that Jesus offers is a prayer in which he's asking for the will of the Father. And I didn't mention this earlier. But see where it is that Jesus prays. Mark tells us that he prays, uh, in the darkness of morning, he went out to a desolate place. Well, that's interesting. And the word for desolate place is certainly not rare in the New Testament. And this very word is actually pervasive in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. But just imagine in a single chapter in Mark's gospel, Mark has already used this word four times. In verse 3, John the Baptist is the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Or 
the desolate place. In verse 4, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness. In verse 12, Jesus is driven into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit, where in verse 14, he's tempted by Satan in this wilderness for 40 days. That's the desolate place. You know, when we study the Bible closely, we don't want to see things that, that aren't there. I know we have to be careful as we interpret. I have to be careful as I preach. But it seems extremely likely that Mark wants us to understand something about the wilderness from the perspective of Jesus. The Hebrew people, they needed that wilderness, didn't they? They needed that wilderness as a place where they would remember who they were as the people beloved by God. You know, some of us here this morning know that uh, we have gone through difficult periods of lives that are actually bittersweet. They're difficult, but there's something about those periods of life. They're full of grief and uncertainty, but there are also times in which we know we felt very close to God. That doesn't mean all of our difficulties over time we as Christians interpret in that way, but I think Everyone here who has been walking with Jesus for more than a year can think of instances in life that have been very difficult while at the same time being instances in life in which God was quite near. (laughs) Difficulties, again, are not always like this, but they can be. And for the Hebrew people, deliverance from Egypt, well, it required an extended stay in the wilderness in order for them to remember who they were. They needed the fearfulness of the wilderness to know that they were protected by God. They needed the deprivation of the wilderness to know that they were provided for by God. God, he was with them, meeting with them at the tent, but also leading them through that wilderness each and every day by his very presence. And Jesus, look what he's doing. He's entering the wilderness, and he's doing so voluntarily that he might be close to God but that you might also hear instructions from him. Deep submissiveness on the part of Jesus. And so we read in verse 38, let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. I came out must be understood as as coming forth from the presence of God. And we could jump forward to John chapter 18 when Jesus says to Pontius Pilate, for this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. And Jesus, he comes out from the presence of God in the wilderness knowing what to do next. We really do need to see that Jesus, he is submitting to the Father. God sent his son for the purpose of proclaiming the good news, which is the only way one enters into the kingdom of God. And when we see that Jesus is controlling this gospel ministry, as we do in verse 34, he wouldn't permit the demons to speak. Now we learn that his control is actually a function of submission to his Father. God is directing the footsteps of his son to make the way into the kingdom of God known. You know, this really is another display that the gospel has been prepared by God from all the way back when Adam and Eve broke the covenant of works. These two, they rebelled against God, refusing to accept his fellowship on his terms and instead attempted to tell uh, God how things would be. Well, God tells them how things will be. And Jesus, he submits to the Father in his control for how the gospel rolls out according to the will of the Father. 
And so he controls, but he submits. So we've seen Jesus control the ministry of the gospel as he serves Peter's mother-in-law and the disciples. And we see how he controls the gospel as he submits to the Father. But now we see this even as he shows compassion. Mark doesn't tell us where Jesus is, or when it is for that matter, when the leper approaches him. Here we're looking at verses 35 through, or I'm sorry, uh, verses uh, 40 through 45. We've seen uh, Jesus heal already, and we know that there was an evening not long ago when he healed many who were gathered at the door of that house. This scene, then, is the second healing scene that Mark shares with us in detail. And so he says in verse 40, and a leper came to him. This leper deliberately seeks Jesus, which should get our attention Mark didn't say this even about the disciples. Jesus came to the disciples. They didn't come to him. But here, someone in desperate need approaches Jesus. And look how he approaches. He came to him, imploring him and kneeling. Everything about him suggests desperate need, crying out for help, but also reverent faith as he rushes to his knees. And not only does he kneel before Jesus, but something that we've never seen thus far in Mark's gospel happens, not even from John the Baptist. Listen to what this man says. If you will, you can make me clean. If you will, you can make me clean. The language here is clearly full of trust. If you merely will it, if you merely desire it, Jesus, it can be done. And then know what the leper wants as he comes to Jesus so reverently. You think that he wants healing, and he does want healing. But that's not what he asks for, is it? He actually wants cleanness. And for this, we really need to understand what this man is up against. It's not merely a skin disease. In the leper's mind are the regulations from Leviticus about dealing with publicly visible skin diseases. One commentator says that a skin disease, it wasn't merely an illness, it was a sentence. A person like this, according to the Old Testament, well, this person would have to live alone in isolation, in quarantine. There's a word we don't want to hear again. He would be separated from every other human, and he'd have to announce that separation if any human should chance to pass by him. Everyone must know that he's in quarantine. That's why a person with leprosy loses everything. Not just their health, not just their hope for a long life, but their community, their employment, their habits, their name, more likely, their family. And one can hope that the disease will abate, but it might not. One first century historian says that the life of a leprous person is very similar to that of a corpse. But if he's clean... If he's truly clean, he gets it all back. This man believes that there's nothing stopping Jesus from making him clean. He can do it. All he needs to do is to desire that he be clean. Jesus doesn't need to wash him. Jesus doesn't need to make an offering for him. Jesus doesn't need to pray for him or visit the local priest on his behalf. Nothing. If Jesus would just will it, it's done. And look what Mark tells us in verse 41. Jesus was moved with pity. Praise be to God. He was moved with pity. He, the one who is controlling the advancement of the gospel, the way in which someone enters the kingdom of God, he himself is moved with pity. You know, at least eight times in the other gospels, Jesus will have pity on the sick, 
on the crowds, on the demon-possessed. But remember that we're noticing how Jesus controls the gospel message. Even in this passage, he, in verse 43, sternly charges this man, gives him commands. And he tells them in verse 44, say nothing to anyone. He's totally in control. But yet his heart still swells with compassion for this man. Compassion like that that the good Samaritan has for his neighbor. Compassion like that that the father has for his wastrel prodigal son. And Jesus, he shows this compassion, and he shows it in a cosmically dangerous way. Do you know when you're watching a movie, uh, a thriller or a drama, or maybe it's a, a play or it's a book that you're reading, and there's, there's a scene that just captures us, it holds us with anticipation, and, and we, we get just caught up in that, in that narrative, and we wonder what the character will do next. We think we know, but we're not sure that we know. How will the character re- react? What will they do? Do I think what they do, what they will do, will, will that actually come to pass? And so we take notice, and uh, we are uh, proverbially uh, scooted to the edge of our seats. We take notice. And I think that we miss that in this passage. But when Jesus starts walking towards this man, everyone present, Mark doesn't tell us who's there, everyone present, (laughs) they're all thinking exactly the same thing. What are you doing, Jesus? (laughs) Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't you dare do it. I know what you're thinking. Don't do it. And he does it. He does it. He's so moved with pity, for the second time, he touches a person. You know, the corpse-like existence of the leprous man should enter the healthy one. That's what's supposed to happen. The, The existence of the leprous man ought to enter that healthy one, but instead, the health of the healthy one enters the leprous man, and immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. Jesus is very much in charge of the gospel, takes charge over every scene, exactly how this gospel unfolds. He is in charge of. He tells this man to submit to the local priests. Boy, what an awful thing to do. Listen to what Jesus is saying to this man after this man has been healed. Submit to the local priests. This would mean a trip to Jerusalem when the priest was on duty. So uh, not uh, any visit to Jerusalem, but a visit to Jerusalem when there's something significant happening, a festival. This may be three or perhaps four times a year. And this can't be done by a temple official. It has to be done by a priest. And then once in Jerusalem, this man, uh, he would have to endure this protocol that would drag on for at the very least one week, but probably several weeks, and it's going to involve an offering. And all of this, all of these steps are going to have to be done while he's in quarantine. And only then, after he's followed all these steps, would he get a certificate and come home to rebuild his life. And he doesn't want to do this. Would you want to do this? And now in verse 45, Jesus, he's unable to enter a town because his fame precedes him. The man, he didn't do it. But it's striking, isn't it, that Jesus would have commands associated with the proclamation of the gospel. I want us to see from this that Jesus, he's completely in control of the gospel. The time is fulfilled to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God, but he will control how that message is preached. This means a couple of things as we close. It means, first of all, this. 
It means that you cannot determine the terms by which you will receive Jesus. There are many who believe that because they believe in God, they have eternal life. There are many that believe that because they respect Jesus as a fine teacher, that he really existed and was really wise, because they believe this and respect Jesus, that they'll be safe from God's judgment. There are many who believe that uh, as they uh, just uh, go to church and as they, as they live the best life that they have, uh, being the best self that they are, they'll surely enter the kingdom of God. Well, you don't believe any of these, do you? These are dangerous errors and only serve to show a refusal to submit to the one path into the kingdom of God. To enter that kingdom, you must place your life in the hands of Jesus. He's God's one doorway into a life within and behind that great reign. You try to come to Jesus on your own terms, and you'll be on the wrong side of that kingdom of God, and his reign will bite you. He'll not be trifled with. In his grace, he has offered a way, a single way of salvation, and that is through the body of Jesus Christ. That is his way of saving you. (laughs) That's very important, and I want us to hear that. The gospel is not something that you control. It controls. It is objectively true. You must deal with Jesus. Trust him or don't. But there's also this, and here's where I want to conclude. Jesus, he has come to serve you. He's entered your house, and he'll take you by the hand, and he'll lift you up. He'll lift you up into new life, but he'll also lift you up into resurrected life. He has come to serve. Nobody else will serve you like this. Nobody else can serve you like this, and you certainly can't serve yourself like this. You simply lie and wait to die. And not only that, this Jesus, he's perfectly submitted to the creator and sustainer of all things. God is truly and utterly satisfied, made happy, pleased. If you wish to satisfy God, you cannot. But Jesus can, and he has. And because he has done so, this Jesus is your single ticket to have a right relationship with this God who is satisfied only in this perfect son of his. And then finally this, it really doesn't matter how much sorrow you're aware of in life. It doesn't matter how deeply you regret the lost opportunities. It doesn't matter how intensely you feel remorse for the various failures of your life. This sorrow, which is real, Well, this sorrow pales in comparison to Jesus' sorrow for you. Your self-pity, it's almost almost a plaything in comparison to the pity that Jesus has for you. Your self-pity is watered-down juice in comparison to the rich wine of his pity. His pity leads him to pour out his blood for you upon the cross. He is the one who is full of compassion. Your pity is and your compassion for yourself pale in comparison. And this one, who is full of pity, he comes to you. And this one, he touches you. And as he touches you, he does for you what you cannot do for yourself. 
The time's fulfilled to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God, but he will control how that message is preached, but he will preach it. And he has preached it to you here this morning. Would you join me in prayer? Our dearest Jesus, we thank you for your love for us, that you would come and that you would serve us, offering your body for our life. You have taken the initiative to come to us and to take us by the hand and to lift us up into eternity with you. And you've shown us pity and not been fearful of our filth, but entered that filth and touched us. Thank you. Jesus, for salvation. In your name, amen.